Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Today we discuss a fintech company. In any financial decision that you make, you should run by your financial accountant, consultants, or lawyers, and today's conversation is not necessarily a recommendation to invest. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. We are back in Sovereign Sounds Studio here in Atlanta, Georgia, with Sharif Bennett of Cineblock, and we're going to get into not just entertainment, but movies, which is very relevant now because if you haven't noticed, the writers are on strike and all new movies and shows, for the most part, have been on pause. So why are we talking about it? Because Cineblock is an opportunity for you to help expand and increase the the amount of content that gets seen and shown uh, really from all over the world. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more and how that came to be. But first, let's get to know Sharif a little bit better. You know how we do it. We want to know some of the founders behind the product, and then we can learn more about what they're bringing to the table. So, Sharif, let's start off with who you were when you were younger. And I implore you, please definitely bring up why you got interested in stand-up comedy. But go ahead. I want just to learn a little bit more about who you are, where you came from, and who you were as a child, and if younger you would be friends with who you are today. Absolutely. Well, Abraham, first off, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for, uh, for some time now, so uh, it's an honor uh, to be here. Who I was as a person? Well, I'm from a town called Nyack, New York, which is right north of uh, New York City. And growing up, I was born in the early 80s. I can tell you who I was as a young child is a lot of who I am today. I was a hip-hop fanatic, <laughs> first and foremost, a hip-hop junkie. Uh, as a kid. I think it was just a byproduct of growing up in New York. My older brother is eight years older than me. I also had uh, three cousins from my aunt who were all older than me as well. So uh, I was heavily influenced by the music that they were listen- listening to. Uh, simultaneously, my father uh, was an ex or a part-time jazz musician. Uh, and my mother was heavily into Motown and singing. So music was just everywhere, right? Was, wait, 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 wait a minute. So you say your your father was a part-time jazz musician. So did you see that growing up? Like, did you see him perform out in the clubs? Were oh, you part of yeah. that? Or you just I, saw my, him when he came home or what? All the time. My father played all the time. He played the saxophone. He played the saxophone for about 50 years. Some of my earliest memories are him literally giving me the saxophone at age three or four and saying, here, blow. Right? So music was always heavily in my household and a major influence uh, in what it is I did. Uh, music provided this, this, this framework that taught you what structure was, but at the same time within this given structure, there's the ability to improvise and there's ways to change things. But before you can go and start bending rules, you have to understand what the rules are and, and what the basics and what the frameworks are. So music was a great way for me to, to begin the learning process. Uh, and it still surrounds everything it is that I do. So if you ask me who I was when I was younger, hip hop junkie, hip hop, sports, but I always had a, uh, an intellectual curiosity, I would say, to discover things. One of the things that I actually wanted to do when I was real, real young, I remember being uh, in elementary school and a teacher asking us, you know, what job it is you wanted. And mine was a stand-up comic. I wanted to be a stand-up comic. I used to literally memorize Bill Cosby himself. One of the, For those of you who don't know, that's one of Bill Cosby's greatest stand-ups. I want to say it came out maybe 82, 83. So right before the Cosby show came out. Which one? It's called Bill Cosby himself. Oh, 
see this. Yeah, that's the name of it. And I literally memorized it from start to finish as as a kid and would literally recite it. I could literally do the entire 90-minute show. Was it was it family friendly? It was family friendly. He was not. <laughs> in real life as we came as we came to learn. Um, but the stand-up itself was certainly incredible. And that's what sort of I was fascinated by someone getting up there on stage and just sort of conveying their ideas and having people laugh at it. So that was really sort of my first foray into it. And I actually moved away from doing comedy for a period, uh, I guess, you know, just interest in other things. But it was it was definitely that. And so who I was was as a young person was uh, a mix of things, you know, growing up in New York. Uh, I loved wrestling. Right. I love sports uh, as a young person uh, and film, film, TV, media, all, all those things were really, really uh, important to me. And, and I was I guess I would have likened myself to be this, you know, intellectual when I was, you know, 16, 17. I, you know, I got into reading quite a bit. So that's sort of, you know, who I was. Curious how the stand up comedy impacted just like your interactions with people off stage and what it was like. Like, did you on a persona when you were on stage or even as a kid or like how were you interacting with other people and did you consider ever being an actor or in a movie like some of you know your favorite comics yeah. might have been eventually the thing about laughter to me that's important is that it's it's a great medicine i think the reason why i was drawn to it is because it's a way to immediately grab someone's attention if you're making them laugh right it's a it's a way to de-escalate any sort of tension in a particular room. Did you use it that way? Um, you got it. Not you're on the brink of fights. And not, not consciously, like, hey, but your being, mama. <laughs> but being funny is a good way to keep people from whipping your ass, right? That's true. Um, that the, the it's also a good way to get somebody to whip your ass too if you say the wrong also thing. Also true. Um, but I, I, I think I sort of used it as a way to to defuse like any sort of tension. Okay. Right. Uh, people knew me as like, hey, Sharif, he's that funny guy who likes hip hop. Did you like that or did you later come to like question if that was what you wanted people to think of you? Because, you know, being silly when you're younger, that could be your angle. Right. But like later on, maybe you want to be more serious. I don't know. Other comedians have perhaps struggled with that a bit where they try to shift. But I'm not trying to take it there. I'm just curious yeah. if that happened with you. And not so much. I think you just have to learn how to channel it properly. OK. Right. And I think that becomes so much of like everyone. There's always class clowns. Right. Right. Um, but if you took the average class clown and then put them on stage, they bomb. Right. Because so much of being a class clown is that improvisational nature, the ability to just take what's happening in the moment and provide analysis or insight or something clever to it. Right. Okay. But when you're actually on stage, there's a lot of insight it is that you have to have because people are coming to you. They want to laugh. But at the same time, most people don't realize when they're going to a stand up show, they also want to learn. Mm. right and so you as a stand-up are the teacher at the same time right you're the teacher you're the conveyor of ideas and the audience is looking to you for particular insights and if you're unable to provide those insights while at the same time not providing them laughter you're going to get heckled you're going to be told yeah you suck get off the stage right so there's a lot of things you have to do as a comic and it's all about balance i see do you have any jokes for us? Can you remember any from back in the day? None that immediately come to if if some something occurs to me while on the spot, I'll immediately bring it up. You knew it was gonna happen. You know yeah. I was gonna ask you. Hey, people you and the funny thing is people always ask me that. But if you think of the best comics, they don't really have sort of like punchlines like that. Like That's the true. last real comic who could just come into the room and just da dun da dun laughter was probably like Rodney Dangerfield. Okay. Right? If you think about it, it's very rare that you get someone who can just do punchline after punchline after punchline after punchline. Without setup. Did you see any overlap with comedy and hip hop? I've mentioned this before on the podcast. 
was reading a book called Elements of Wit, and they were talking about, you know, Oliver Wilde, Winston Churchill, some really witty folks, but they also had basically an entire chapter on Jay-Z and how he, you know, approached his hip hop and, you know, his improvisation and how he was putting words together and how he was really living that, that, that lifestyle in his mind, wherever he went. And I'm wondering for you, did you see any overlap with comedy and hip hop and the improvisation, especially in New York in the time that you were growing up? Was that the draw for you? Talk more about that. Absolutely. You know what? I never really put that together until you just said it. But if you think of uh, what's commonly referred to as the battle rapper, right? We're not talking like when someone goes into a studio and records. So much of being a battle rapper is about being funny. You don't necessarily need to have the most insightful lyrics. You don't need to have to be on point with anything else. If you can make that audience laugh, and if you can clown the other person who you are battling against, you're going to win. It doesn't really matter how good the other person might be in terms of studio records. But if we're talking like a straight battle, humor is absurdly important, right? It's, it's probably the most important thing you can bring with you on stage if you're looking to win a battle, right? Can you humiliate this other person? Is that what comedy is? Is that what humor is? Is humiliation or? It- Not necessarily, but it's just all about laughter. Okay. Right? The whole idea of a laugh, I, I think laughter boils down to the reason we laugh is because you don't, the best laughter is something you don't expect to happen. You don't expect someone to be funny in this That's particular true. instance, right? That is the true. The reason why someone walking and tripping and you see someone walk and trip and you laugh, it's because you're not supposed to, right? right? You're supposed to be able to walk. But because you've laughed or because you've tripped, now it's funny, right? Yeah. So, so much of humor is based on the assumption that something's supposed to happen and then that literally that rug is pulled out from under you. Same thing with hip hop, right? So with hip hop, when you, or at least in the era that I came up with, I came up in, you're sitting here, you're waiting for the punchline. You're waiting for the rhyme scheme to happen. You're waiting to hear how someone raps over this particular beat. You're waiting for the chorus. There's so many assumptions that you have built up and you're just waiting for that particular MC to, uh, to handle, for lack of unquote, this particular track, right? And how they handle it is what describes their greatness. Right? That makes sense. Before we move on, I do want to just ask you, you've gone to some fancy schools, some, some pretty good academic environments that you entered into. And I'm curious about this, how you transitioned. If people from your neighborhood were often going there, was this something you were accultured to before you got there? Just because I think about that in my own you know, yeah. education educational background where not everybody was thinking I'm going to go to, you know, these particular schools or this environment. A lot of people were um, in certain classes, but what I'm really getting at is how did you deal with that transition for somebody who's listening to this right now? Maybe they are in a situation or an environment where other people around them aren't necessarily where they want to be. How did you approach entering this new world where uh, you were encountering people who were really going to push you in a different way. And your identity was based on um, experiences that you previously had that other people may not be as familiar or intimately associated with. Yeah, that's a great question. Part of it was, once again, the immediate environment I grew up in between my mother and my father and uh, my older brother, right? So my father is actually from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And in 1966, he was actually offered the opportunity to attend uh, a very now prestigious uh, prep school called Deerfield Prep Academy. And so according to him, he claims to be the third black person who went to Deerfield. Uh, And then from Deerfield, he went to Columbia. Um, And my mother, she dropped out of high school, but then went back to school and then ended up getting a a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree, et cetera. So education was 
always something that was uh, put in front of us as a vehicle, right? As a vehicle for us to get to the next steps in life. And uh, I benefited from my older brother being eight years older than me. And so when my parents were taking him through the college process, they took me along as well, right? So as a little kid, I remembered visiting uh, a bunch of different schools with him. And ultimately, one of the schools that he visited is where I ultimately ended up attending, which is Swarthmore College, right? So my brother got accepted, but ultimately turned down Swarthmore. And my parents wanted him to go there. It's not something that even dawned on me until I, I remember being in the admissions office, like after I graduated and being like, wait, why have I been here? Not graduated, but uh, upon you know visit, I was like, wait, why have I, why does this seem familiar? I was like, wait, is this deja vu? Like what? And I was like, oh yeah, I was, I was here eight years ago. I sat in that chair right there as that little kid waiting for my, waiting for my brother to finish attending, you know, this particular class. So as far as like how I balanced it, I think having that home environment where this was always the expectation was, was great. Uh, Cause I certainly uh, spent a lot of my time around people who didn't necessarily have the same academic goals that I might have. I see, but your dad went to boarding school. He did and certainly didn't want me going there. Really? Why not? It was really difficult for him. I think emotionally. Keep in mind, you know, this is 1966 for my father. He's coming from Winston-Salem. He came from a self-functioning black community, right? You know, we're currently in Atlanta. And, you know, outside of Atlanta, it's in certain pockets within the U.S., it's difficult to see fully functioning black communities, right? Where white people, not just white people, but any other race really doesn't play a part in the everyday. So, for example, when you go to the dentist, the dentist is black. When you go to the movie theater, everyone... Uh, who's working in the movie theater is black. All your teachers are black. So he goes from that environment now to an almost entirely white, elitist, wealthy environment. Uh, I remember I did a report on Malcolm X when I was in fourth grade. Okay. Right. And I remember the teacher saying to me, because when we had to sit down and we had, it was, it was, you know, like the biggest report you've had to that point, you know, mm-hmm. in, in your, in elementary school. I remember it was something that had to be like 10 pages long, right? For a nine-year-old, this is daunting. Yeah. When I decided I wanted to do Malcolm X, I remember the, the teacher saying to me, Sharif, you know, you might have some difficulties finding information on Malcolm X. And without even any hesitation, and she was correct, right? If I had just stayed in the local library, she was 100% correct. Then I looked at it, I was like, no, I'm good. I know there's this bookstore on 125th Street that my family goes, like I literally laid out to her, like, no, I'm good. Like my family knows like how to get information on Malcolm X. And sure enough, after I completed the report, she then asked me to borrow the very books it is that I had read in order to uh, do the report. She was like, Sharif, can I borrow them? Because I want to learn about Malcolm X. Wow. So my parents always did a really good job, I think, of, of supplementing uh, additional education. Because if you're just allowing uh, these school systems to educate black children, there's a definite deficiency that they'll have, uh, most often than not, and once again, we're speaking in general generalities here, there's a deficiency that they'll have in terms of their own knowledge uh, about themselves and their own culture if we're just relying on the American public education system. I think My that parents is, were aware of that. That is so true. And it reminds me of a couple of conversations I had when I was in college. I remember sitting in the classics department at Howard and talking to the chair of the department and saying, you know, I am not going to entrust any institution with the comprehensive blueprint for what I should be learning. And I'm going to learn outside of that. You found your way into technology and the venture space. And I'm curious exactly how you go from, you know, heart beating super fast about to stand on the stage, trying to avoid and dodge like the bananas or apples or or whatever they throw (laughs) at you to now you are, you know, in a space with uh, a lot of people who are competing to be the first and the fastest and the most optimal 
when it comes to efficiency and problem solving, which in a way is, is similar to, to stand up comedy. But how did you transition and first start touching technology? Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great question. Um, so it was vis-a-vis sales. Right. So after so I had done stand up and improv, I had done that for a few years and I went flat broke like a lot of struggling artists. They say you need to put in five years of work to become an overnight success. <laughs> Something like that. I'd, I'd put in maybe three, three years and I, and I was broke. Um, and, I, you know, you have you know, those conversations where you look in the mirror like, did I do all of these things? Why did I go to Swarthmore College? And I'm now broke. Like I'm seeing all of my classmates and my peers from that era now uh, move past me right? Professionally. Um, and so when I was, and keep in mind, folks, this was during the last great recession that happened. So this is circa 2009, 2010. Uh, and I'm trying now to enter back into the workspace and I can't, nobody wanted to hire me. I'd done marketing before, but I hadn't done anything quote unquote professional in two years. But then I got a call, um, from a recruiter who was recruiting for ADT fire and security selling home security systems in Chicago. And I was, and I literally just said to her, I was like, why did you contact me? And she said, Sharif, you did improv at Second City. I have no doubts that I can put you in front of someone and you can memorize a script and you can repeat it. I thought to myself, I was like, yeah, I, I, I guess I can. That sounds pretty cool. So then I got into sales, right? And I was doing uh, home security sales. And then from there I said, all right, like this is cool. It helped get some money in my pocket. But once again, I'm seeing my friends from college now lap me professionally. I think I need to, I need to probably go back to school. Right. Um, and so that's when I decided to look at MBA programs. Right. I, I felt like, you know, sales wasn't for people with, you know, people who got MBAs don't do sales, right. They do finance and consulting and they sit atop the ivory, you know, the, the tower and, and make moves, et cetera, et cetera. So I got accepted. I then moved from Chicago to Charlottesville, Virginia, to get my MBA from the university of Virginia. And while I was there, I had a professor who came from a, who had a very sales background. He was the, the head of marketing. They'd recruited him from Harvard, uh, from HBS, to come to Virginia and lead their marketing department. And he had actually led sales strategy at Xerox for a number of years before getting his PhD. And so we would be in class and I would, you know, I'd say things because he taught from a, a heavy sales background. And he, he was like, wait, what? How did you know that? And so one day after class, he pulls me aside and he was just like, Sharif, we, we need to have a chat. You need to meet me in my office after class. And that's when he first started telling me about tech sales, which I knew nothing about, right? I didn't have a family member who ever worked for IBM or Microsoft or anything like that. I never had any exposure to it. What he started relaying to me was obviously there's a, it's a good way to make money. You know, you can make a certain amount of money, a lot of money, some people would say, doing tech sales. And that's sort of how I first looked into it. So then I got recruited by IBM coming out of uh, business school. And that's how I got into the world of tech sales. Right? And I moved from IBM, which, you know, IBM sells everything under the sun. But then I moved to a bit more specific uh, sales, which was more specifically uh, DevOps or DevSecOps, which has to do with the building and deploying of applications over a given infrastructure. I'm not going to nerd out here on this podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry, everybody. We just have to, if you have a cell phone and you got apps on it, somebody has to build those apps. Somebody has to, to, to deploy those apps and somebody has to secure those apps. So that really was the software that I was selling, right? Um, and that's sort of how I transitioned into the world of tech. But you weren't going door to door. You were on the phone just, you know, for people who are looking to get in to a non-technical role, which is sales, tech sales, 
how were you approaching that? Was it any different, you know, that they trained you? Like, what was the benefit of actually going and working for IBM? Which I'm sure that your parents, because IBM is a powerful brand for, you know, the generation for our parents and now too. But what did you get out of that experience that you, you think helped you in this current walk that you're on right now? Yeah. Um, well, for starters, one of the most important things is business. Uh, in business is learning how to run a meeting. It's one of... It's something no one's ever going to tell you how important it is, but it's literally one of the most crucial things you're ever, ever going to do in the business world. You can lose legitimacy in 10 seconds if you don't know how to properly set an agenda to a specific meeting and funnel a conversation in a different direction and in the specific direction where it needs to be. Why, how, when did you leave IBM? IBM? So I left IBM after about three years with a goal of, at the time now, I had gotten my MBA, right? I had, I'd been in IBM for a few years now, and I started looking across the board to say, all right, what are, what are the next moves it is that you want to make in life, Sharif? So at the time, what I was looking at, and this is circa 2016, 2017, I started seeing these tech companies going public, right? And it was just like, wait, IPOs after IPOs that started happening. And I was like, man, this is something. I need to align myself and get down with one of these companies that is hoping to go public and go from there. And so I left IBM. I then joined uh, a smaller company that wasn't public, right? Because keep in mind, IBM at the time had 350,000 people. That's, that's a small country, right? Um, so for me then to go to a small startup, that probably would have been a shock to the system, too, much, too rough a transition. So I, I was recruited by a, a company in the DevOps space by the name of New Relic. They were already public, but they were building an office here in Atlanta. And Atlanta was going to serve as their East Coast headquarters. So it almost felt like we were a little startup within, within that company itself, right? And so I worked there for a year, got familiar with the DevOps space. I knew nothing about it prior to. What is DevOps? Once again, that's the building and deploying of applications over a given infrastructure. So basically building and deploying applications, right? But then I got recruited by another company that at the time had plans to go public. They reached out to me, I didn't reach out to them. It was one of those things like, you know, you put it in the air, you think about something hard enough and you work towards it. And, you know, intersection is the, excuse me, success is the intersection of preparation and luck. And that's just literally what happened. And so this company uh, called GitLab, who had plans of going public, recruited me and basically said, hey, Sharif, do you know, do you wanna come work here? And I was like, yeah, sure, you know? And um, they ended up going public two years later. Right. And so that was a real that was a game changer for me, you know, professionally, uh, personally. Right. Because uh, one percent of venture back companies ever get to the stage of IPO. Right. Ninety nine percent either fail or are purchased uh, at some point. So to be able to see that and go through that and see the different stages of what a company has to evolve to in order to go public was a real eye opener. For me. Like what? What was that like? Um, well, you got to scale. Right. So when I joined, I was employee number maybe 300. Now, keep in mind, at the time, too, when I joined GitLab, it was the world's first all remote company. So in 2019, I joined the company where there was no HQ. It was all remote. Now, we sit here in 2023 and because of COVID, being all remote is somewhat normalized to us. But back then it wasn't. Right. So you have to ensure that the people that you're hiring are focused and won't watch television all day while they're at home, right? They have to have a certain skill set in them, right? Or a certain drive in them uh, that can allow them uh, to work every day 
um, without being in the confines of an office and having a boss oversee all everything it is that they do, right? And so one of the things that GitLab did that was really unique that I had never seen before was this uh, idea of a handbook. And this handbook is supposed to be the guide to supposedly how it is you're supposed to do everything, right? If you have a question, you know, you go to this handbook or that handbook. And so that was interesting. I don't totally abide by the handbook methodology because you can also get into handbook shaming, which engineers love to do, by the way. If you have a question, they'll literally be like, uh, did you check page 36 of the 400-page handbook? And it's like, look, dude, come on. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm three months in here. No, I didn't read page 36. That's why I'm asking you. But it can also serve as a good framework, right, on how to uh, on how to get everyone on the same page, literally. Talk mm-hmm. to us about how Cineblock became a company. Yeah, yeah, great question. So I gave you guys, you know, a little, once again, a little bit about my background, you know, college to uh, stand up and grad school and all that. But while I was in college, uh, the, my co-founders are all graduates of Swarthmore College, right? And so... Uh, the CEO is a friend of mine. So long before we decided to start a company, he and I were friends. It, st- it all started from friendship. We've known each other since Scott. I don't want to show my age here, but uh, we met in 1999, right? Um, and we both had a passion for film and media. And so when we were in school together, we would sit and talk about scripts and movies and just sit there for hours and talk about it. So I went on my journey by day, right? You know, I was doing stand up or working for this company, moving here and doing all that. And he went on his. And so after he graduated from Swarthmore, he then went uh, and by day worked uh, for companies like Fannie and Freddie. He was looking at mortgage lending, right? By day. And then by night, he was a producer on films. And what he realized or what he saw was the gap it is for independent filmmakers to actually get financing. And the first thing that came to him was like, how, how can we go about getting financing? And because he had worked uh, for Fannie and Freddie and uh, in the financial industry, he thought of mutual funds and said, why can't we just fractionalize the investment? So much of movie, uh, of film investment, the, the lion's share of people who invest in films are what are called accredited investors. So people who have a net worth of generally half a million dollars or more are a lot of the people who invest in films. Only 2% of the population maybe has a net worth of a half a million dollars or more, right? So what his idea was, like, all right, well, let's fractionalize it in the same way that mutual funds are fractionalized. In the same fashion where people can pool their resources together to invest in a home, why can't we do the same thing with art, right? So that was his first sort of idea. And he just also happened to be studying the blockchain, because uh, blockchain, at this point, you know, crypto had become a name and uh, obviously uh, Bitcoin was out there. And what he realized was that blockchain was a great vehicle uh, to provide uh, basic things such as accounting uh, and security. Right. That's what the blockchain does. It acts as an accounting ledger. Right. And in order for someone to move from one blockchain to the next, they have to solve an algorithm. Uh, for those of you, uh, in other words, they use the term called mining for Bitcoin. That's all. That's all it is. It's, you're literally studying, you're, you're solving algorithms. And so what he said was like, we can use the blockchain to begin fractionalizing in art investment. And so he pitched me this idea. And because I had worked for IBM for three years, I was familiar with the blockchain because IBM is a massive partner with the blockchain. So I was totally on board. Right. And so the basic premise and as someone who had been in that world, right, like I'd done stand up, I'd done comedy, I'd been in a few movies, 
I knew the difficulties that people had in terms of getting financing for a film. So when he immediately pitched the idea, I was like, this, this is, yeah, this works automatically. Let's do it. And then he brought in our third co-founder, Julian, who actually graduated from Swarthmore before I was there, but he's an entertainment lawyer who has knowledge of securities as well. Yeah. And he's so, the reason we got connected too. Shout exactly. Out to Julian, Shout yeah. out to Julian. And so that's how the three, it was just like, okay, Sheree, if you have this sales and marketing background, right. And knowledge of this, you can probably be a front man, a pitch man, Julian, you can work the legalese, you know, part of this, right. All, all, all that, that needs to happen. I, I'm the tech person, right. I know, I know so much about this. I'll work that angle. And the three of us here, let's see what we can build. And that's really what it just came out of this idea of taking, of, of basically deconstructing the current Hollywood paradigm, which we'll get into more, I'm sure. Right. As this podcast continues. But how can we make it so that everyday people can invest in art? Right. OK. So what is Cineblock? I mean, you, you mentioned like what it's built of, but what is it and, you know, how does it work? And, you know, I like watching movies and, and it's it's interesting because if you look at a chart of the different generations, movie watching goes down. Gen Z doesn't really watch movies in the same way that we do. And the baby boomers uh, and Gen X watch more movies than anybody, but I still right. love watching movies. I think that it's a powerful medium and it's, it's a it's cultural currency to know the references in really iconic movies. Uh, but what is Cineblock yeah. and, and you know, what is the benefit? I watch a lot of movies. Is it for me? Is it something where I should be looking into this? Like what is Cineblock? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, you should be looking into it. What Cineblock is, is Cineblock is a platform that allows a content creator, and I know this, this can be a touchy word for some people, because I meet some people who are like, I'm not a content creator, I'm a director. Like, right, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, not trying to offend anyone, right? But Cineblock is a platform for content creators, directors, writers, producers, right? To offer up equity in their projects in exchange for money. So let's, let's talk about the use cases, right? So what does that really mean? That means, Abraham, say you want to make a film about your life. I do. There you go. Bomb. So let's, let's break it down right now. Okay. Right? What you can do is you can write, you can come up with an idea. You can write a script. You can even film it, whatever, right? And you know that you've had to either shell out money to make this movie and you need to recoup those funds so you can then offer up equity in your completed project and say, hey, I'm going to give away 15% of the equity of, uh, of this film uh, and sell it uh, to people. Or... In the event where you're like, look, I need to write this and I need to then get to pre-production. I want to film it, but I don't have the money to film it. What you can do then is say, all right, I've got this written script. What I'm going to do is give up equity in it. Uh, once again, we'll just use the example of 15%. And I'm going to use the funds that I get in order to invest now back into the film to get to that production level. So basically what we are, a lot of this comes from the basic mold of what's called regulation crowdfunding or Reg CF. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's basically the framework that Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, Seed and Spark, that's, that's entirely what they do, right? It's crowdsourcing, right? What happened in 2012 was that Barack Obama signed into law what's called equity crowdsourcing. So whereas the other platforms that I just mentioned, their basic framework is, hey, I have this particular idea or story and, you know, out of your good-hearted nature, will you please contribute to my campaign, right? It's all well and good. It's a great thing. Our platform differs in that we take a more cynical approach to human nature. At some point, that, that good-hearted nature will run out, and people will not want to contribute to your campaign just out of the goodness at their heart. At some point, people are going to want something in return for their dollars and their investment, right? 
So what equity crowdfunding does is it operates off that, uh, for lack of a better term, that Kickstarter or crowdsourcing model and says that, yes, you can offer, you can do crowdsourcing, but instead it'll be equity based, right? And someone can offer up equity in their, in their art form, right? In this case, their movie, their TV show, their documentary, uh, in exchange for funds from people who they may already know or potential investors who are looking for alternative investment class. Cineblock is almost like Kickstarter meets E-Trade, where assets such as a script or a film are treated like a stock that someone can invest in, right? In hopes of an appreciation at a later date. Okay, I got some questions because, you know, in another life, I was an entertainment lawyer in a way. Uh, I worked on some documentary and, and production and distribution deals and agreements. I was learning, of course, but I do remember my mentors telling me this, and I want to press you on this because this would be relevant uh, to anyone who is considering learning more about Cineblock. He said there's a saying in show business, there's no back end in the back end, <laughs> and that a lot of folks you know, who invest in movies, they get paid after all of the fees, which includes all of the talent, and you know, it's only a few movies that really actually have this huge pool of, of, of money after all those expenses are paid. Do you solve for that, and is that relevant to Cineblock? It's absolutely relevant, right? Because you're 100% correct. So many films don't make money. Right. Or at least that's what the people who invested, the actors are told, hey, this film doesn't make money. We're going to go behind the curtains here, folks. So uh, knuckle up. So here's what generally happens. Once again, this is not all films. This is what generally happens in the industry. So when a film is greenlit, a production company comes in and they file that film under this particular, they create an LLC for that particular film. Right. And you can make the argument is that the goal of that LLC is to never, ever be profitable because what they then tell the artists, the people who invested in is, hey, you'll get a percentage of the revenue made for this once we hit a profitable level. But in creating this LLC, they'll do anything under the sun, right, to generate expenses to prevent that LLC from ever gaining profit. Right. So therefore, the only people who actually make money are the studios and the execs who create the LLC in the first place. So if you're coming in afterwards, for lack of a better term, you're screwed a lot of times, right? What we do is because we use the blockchain and the blockchain is this vehicle behind it, what we're going to offer content creators is the opportunity to be as transparent as possible about all spending. If the content creator wants to, they can create it so that anyone who invested in that asset or you know the film, the TV show, et cetera, can track all of the spending because Smart contracts are going to be signed and executed, and that investor can see and track a lot of where the money is going to be spent. We're all about transparency, right, uh, on our platform. And that is what separates us from, I think, the traditional Hollywood financing model that we've seen over the past 100 years. Its goal is to not be transparent. If any of you are paying attention to the writer's strike, that's one of the main problems that a lot of the writers and actors have. So when the last contracts were negotiated back in 2008, streaming wasn't a reality, right? Nobody was streaming in 2008. But all of a sudden, Netflix starts it circa 2013 with House of Cards, and they then start buying TV shows and all of that, and et cetera, et cetera. And now some 10 years later, actors and writers are raising their hands and saying, wait, I wrote that episode that appears on television, that, that appeared in this TV series, which Netflix picked up. I have no idea how many times it's been streamed. I know that if it's put in the syndication, this is the type of money it is I get. But there's nothing contractually which states 
that the studios themselves or Netflix, for example, have to give in and tell the writers and the actors how many times that show has been streamed. So they can make up any number, right? I was, it's so funny. I was listening to an interview with Aaron Paul. For those of you who don't know who Aaron Paul is, that's Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad, one of the greatest TV shows of all time and one of the greatest characters of all time. And he said something like, he makes a dollar off of Breaking Bad's Netflix streams. So where does the rest of his money come from? Great question. We have <laughs> where does the rest of the money go? Right. We we walk us through film history a little bit or film financing history or talent acquisition history. So you're saying there's a collective bargaining agreement. Correct. For specifically for the writers, not necessarily for the talent, but for the writers. Mm-hmm. And they are committing to receive what? in exchange for their written work. Sure. So they receive, obviously they receive a salary, right? And then they receive what are called residuals. Residuals are payment for any work it is that they've done previously if that show goes into syndication. So for example, take uh, like Seinfeld. Seinfeld has made way more money. Jerry Seinfeld's made way more money off the syndication of Seinfeld than he ever did when the show was on television. Right. It's because you can watch it on all these different comedy channels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. He gets those residual checks. So Jerry Seinfeld wakes up and just makes money. Right. (laughs) He just wakes up and and just makes money. So why are other artists not in that position? They probably don't have Jerry Seinfeld's lawyers. Let me (laughs) let me let me start there. Right. They don't have Abraham as a lawyer. That's that's what it boils down to, folks. Really, it's just about your ability to negotiate and the, the project that is that you have on hand. Right. So Jerry Seinfeld did a very good job of ensuring that his IP or intellectual property stayed with him. Right. And so when a show gets uh, syndicated, right, or a show gets made, they bring writers on. Right. And those writers aren't necessarily the creators. Right. They'll get writing credit for that particular episode. And so then uh, on top of the salary it is that they make, they're then told that they'll get profit sharing. Right? That's basically what residuals are, profit sharing from the syndication of that show. So after a show goes off the air and it's picked up by, say, I don't know, uh, BET or, or WGN or, or something like that, that writer then gets, depending on their contract, on average, they'll get like a quarterly payment for all of the episodes that were ran. And for any episodes it is that they wrote, they receive a portion of the profits of that particular episode. As a writer, you expected, or as an actor, you expected to get residuals from shows that you were on, right? And so that's how it traditionally worked all throughout syndication on cable TV. Streaming comes along and totally breaks the mold for that. It wasn't something anyone envisioned. It was a whole new framework, a whole new paradigm for watching television. And when, once again, I'm not a member of the SGA, I'm not a member of the WGA, but what I'm assuming happened is that when they renegotiated the terms on their last strike and the last strike, which took place in 2008, they had no framework to, to begin even conceptualizing streaming. I mean, they had streaming music at this time, you know, LimeWire, Napster and all that was out. Surely they, they knew streaming was, was coming or maybe they didn't, or maybe there, like you said, there wasn't a framework, but how do you get paid from streaming? This was almost eight nine years ago, but I was looking into this concept as well. There was a, an app at the time where you could invest. You, what you could do is, this was for music, not for for writers of TV shows and movies, but yeah. what you could do is the writers would be like, you know, it's going to take me years to actually get the money from these residuals, so I will sell my songwriters rights, and I'll get paid a lump sum, and you can wait for the residuals to come in, but it took so long for that to come in. I don't know if that business was still even viable, but 
Walk us through, if I'm on Cineblock, what does it look like for me and how is this different from the others that have come and failed along the way? Sure. So when you say for you, are you a content creator or are you a potential investor? I'm both, but walk me through it as an investor. And then if I'm a content creator, why would I choose Cineblock as opposed to Netflix or somewhere else? Absolutely. So if you're an investor, you're going to go onto the Cineblock page and you're going to see a plethora of titles. It is right. That are where content creators are offering up equity in their projects. Some of them are going to be completed, right? Or they're done already. We have projects that you can watch right now, like uh, Malibu road. Uh, you can uh, watch that on Tubi or you can watch it on Amazon prime, et cetera. Uh, and what we're going to do, cause we haven't yet totally, we haven't yet officially launched. What we're going to do is allow that content creator once again, to open up equity. So then you as an investor can go in and you'll have to sign some initial paperwork, verify whether you're an accredited investor versus a non-accredited investor because there's a difference there, right? We have to abide by SEC regulations. And then you'll be able to literally say like, okay, this person's offering up equity at $100 a share. So for $100, I can own a piece of this particular movie. Well, I'm then going to give $100 to, uh, on, the, on the platform. It's going to go to a third-party escrow. And then they're going to hold then that $100. That $100 then can be, you can give it to us in fiat or US DC, you know, US dollars, British pounds, cryptocurrency, doesn't matter. We're, we're, we're currency agnostic. That content creator then is going to run their campaign, right? They'll have up to 365 days to complete that campaign. Let's assume that they complete it. Then at the end of the 365 days, the person who invested has the ability to, to hold on to that token right? Cause that, that, or, or hold on to their investment or potentially sell it not on the Cineblock platform, um, but sell it in a, in a, in a different market or literally exchange it with another person, right? Um, it's fairly simple, right? It's literally just a few click throughs, um, is what we expect it to be when it launches. So that's, that's really what it looks like. So you'll be able to follow some of your favorite artists on, uh, Let's just say like you follow anyone on social media, right? Like, so Abraham, give me an example. Let's use Nas as an example. Yeah. My favorite MC, okay? His new album came out uh, yesterday, by the way. I need, I need to sit and listen to it. Six albums in two years. Like, like, give it up to Nas. That's absurd, all right? Those of you who don't think he's the GOAT, I'm, I, don't really know, I don't really know what else to say. Anyway, so let's say Nas says, man, I want to create a, a story about my life. Now, traditionally, what Nas would do is either put up all of his own money Right. Or he would then go to a studio and pitch this idea. The studio would then put up the money for it. Right. And then Nas would then do all the, the, the filming for it. And it would go through this whole process. And then maybe 18 to 24 months later, you now have a, uh, an, uh, a biography on Nas that you would watch on Showtime or HBO or one of these streaming platforms, et cetera. That's the traditional framework. But now someone like Nas has the opportunity to say, you know what? I do want to do a movie about my life. But I don't want any, any interference from one of these major studios because they may tell me because the studios are the ones who traditionally put up the money. They may say, you know what, Nas, you need to edit out this part of your life. You need to change this part of your life. You need to do that. We're going to leave this out. So traditionally, artists had to compromise their work for the sake of getting it out to the general public because they still had to go through these studios with a platform like Cineblock. A content creator like Nas can say, you know what? I want to do my own biography and I don't want any interference from anybody. This is going to be my story. And he can literally finance it through our platform. Now, someone like Nas has a huge social media following, right? So what he can do is just say, you know what? 
I'm going to go on my Instagram or my Twitter or my TikTok, whichever one it is he prefers, and I'm going to tell my audience, like, hey, I'm going to do this platform, but I'm going to ask you, the, my fans, to come up with a percentage of the funds for this. And we can both benefit from it. I benefit because I'm putting out there what it is I want to see. And you as the fan will not only get to see what it is I specifically want, but you can potentially invest in it and own a piece in it. Okay, so I got a question about this because one of the critiques of equity crowdfunding is that people are using Reg CF to fundraise because they can't get capital elsewhere from that 2%. And if you have the ability to do that, why would you subject yourself to Reg CF? Is it similar here with writers in Cineblock? I would say so. I think there's a few reasons. One, like I mentioned earlier, compromise. You don't have to compromise anymore if you're going through equity crowdfunding. Or let's say, I don't want to say compromise anymore. It's less probable that you will have to compromise on what it is you want for the sake of your story getting out there, right? Because you've got a fan base. What people in this in this sphere, we call it Web3. If you have built up a fan base vis-a-vis Web 2.0, which is Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, your first wave of investors are going to be your fans. Once you begin monetizing your fans, you now have the leverage to do whatever it is that you want. A studio can't tell you that you have to change this or that or the third because you're now able to get financing from a whole slew of people. So that, I think that's, that's one beauty of, of equity crowdfunding. Web 1.0 was when an individual uploaded information onto a server, right? And then that information was available for download by regular people. That's how colleges operated. That's how the U.S. government operated. Web 2.0 comes out and says, wait, I as an individual, I as a regular everyday person, Sharif Bennett, Abraham, I don't need to be a government entity. I don't need to be a school. I can upload information just about me and have it downloaded by tons of people. So that was what Web 2.0 was. MySpace, YouTube, etc. What Web 3 is, what we're just entering now is this phase where you have these communities who are able to transact financially across the board and aren't looking to have their transaction necessarily overseen by a regulatory body like a United States government or a federal reserve or a central bank of any sort. So you have Hollywood royalty getting caught up in this. I mean, this writer strike is a big deal. Are you suggesting that these writers have a viable alternative in Cineblock to give them more leverage in either their current negotiations or their career going forward? Absolutely. I see. (laughs) What is your ultimate goal? And let me tee this up because it was, I guess, about six months ago. I watched a documentary called Hollywoodism. And if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It's an older documentary. It chronicles how Hollywood created the American dream and how I believe it was six uh, producers uh, who all came from basically the same area in in Europe within, I want to say like 200 miles, which is interesting to think about, uh, but how they actually created the American dream and the dynamic there. It's a very interesting documentary. I won't say good, bad either way, but it was very informative. If you want to see which movies began to create this idea of the American dream. And what you're suggesting now is that The American dream itself, if you buy that it was generated and created or promoted by Hollywood, is also tokenized or democratized to allow others to support the messages and the stories that they want. I think of an episode of, um, or I'm thinking of the show, The Black Hamptons, 
And uh, my parents were like, hey, you know, let's watch this. I was like, okay, let's let's kind of see. And I was very intrigued by the difference in the Black Hamptons and the, the TV series Our Kind of People. Our Kind of People was on Fox, and some people liked it, but it didn't make it. And because it didn't make it on Fox, the Black Hamptons, which only had, I think, four or five episodes, even though people loved it and the fans were wanting more of it, they decided to pull the plug on it and hopefully they will drop season two up and coming. But that dynamic alone really does speak to the power of uh, the corporations themselves determining the content that is seen and not necessarily the fans, even though the viewership matters. But if it doesn't have crossover appeal, it could die. And I'm wondering if you think that Cineblock is an opportunity for folks to still have a viable um, show even if they don't have widespread viewership. Absolutely. I, I love the example you brought up. Um, I, I think it's a perfect example, right? So if you're a fan of something and it, a fan of a TV show, a fan of, uh, 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 let's use TV, right? Cause actually TV is actually my favorite medium now for watching. It's not movies. It's, it's TV shows. It's my, that's, that's been my favorite thing for about 15 years. That's a use case. That can absolutely happen right there, right? A network says, uh, we know this really doesn't have the ratings we think it want. It's not, it's not hitting. It's not hitting. So, yeah, we're going to cancel you. What that director or that creator could do, in theory, assuming that the NDA that they initially signed allows them, they could literally then do a raise on our platform and say, you know what? We know we have this, this hardcore group of fans. Let's offer this up and see if they're willing then to invest in our show to get these following episodes made and completed it's absolutely an avenue to bring back shows that are on the cusp of either being canceled or have been canceled and i love how you mentioned the american dream right because that's this is something i speak about when i talk about cineblock culture is only we speak about culture in a lot of ways right uh and it's one of those things that's really tough to break down but if you think about it culture is really only about eight tangible things right it's really only about eight tangible things it's language it's food it's clothes or, or fashion, it's sports, entertainment, religion, TV. It's, there's really no more than 10 things that fundamentally define culture. And when I say culture, it's something that exists independent of the state, or should I say the government itself, right? Culture comes from the people, right? Rarely have everyday regular people ever had the opportunity to invest in culture. You can buy culture, you can go to a, a store and buy clothing. You can go to a restaurant and buy food. You can go into a theater and buy a ticket to a TV show. You can, you can buy a sports jersey. You can do all those things. But how often are you actually ever given the opportunity to invest in culture? It's rare. And I have a question, though, on this. Yes, I can back the creation of it. But in the example that we had of the Black Hamptons, Our Kind of People, you still have to sell it for distribution. And that's what I was learning when I was working on these entertainment law deals. How does Cineblock solve, if it's opposed to that problem, how does this make you a more viable candidate to actually get to market? Great question. So as it stands right now, Cineblock is not a distribution vehicle. But I love where you're going because we thought about this. Now, the plan for us is to eventually, once we get enough films in our catalog, our plan is to start our own streaming network. Right. Uh, so in the same fashion that you pay a monthly subscription for a Netflix and Amazon Prime or Hulu and you can watch their entire catalog. Our hope is that the exact same thing happens with our platform. 
right? And that people will uh, be able to pay a monthly subscription and watch all of the uh, films or TV shows that are completed on our platform. And then from there, they'll be able to see if a film or a TV, a pilot it is that they like, if a campaign is being offered right then and there for that work, they'll be able to then invest from the comfort of their own couch with a click of a button right then and there. I see. Would you be open to other models? I know you're just, you know, you're still sort of in the sandbox figuring this out, but what immediately comes to mind for me is how difficult it is to generate profit from streaming. I mean, you see even the biggest platforms who have bought some of the most impressive and fan-favorited catalogs are still figuring out what's a good price point, you know, is it profitable? So um, can Cineblock still be viable even if the question of distribution is still very much free market? I mean, I would certainly hope so, right? I, I certainly can't tell you the future. That is that is our plan. We're going to stick to it until something else pops up, right? <laughs> um, but I, it's certainly something I would love to see. And if we are generating revenue, if people believe that it's a viable product, why wouldn't they want to see the very product it is that they've invested in on the screen? So let's talk about the, the some of the traction that you've seen. It's still very much closed. You can't download it right now. You had to go through... Uh, the requisite regulatory hurdles. You've been talking to folks at the highest levels of government to make this a reality, but you have still tested it out a little bit. Talk about some of those inside users who were able to give you some early feedback in your closed beta. So a lot of them do bring up the distribution model. It is that, that you discuss right there. And they're like, Sharif, how, how, can, how can I get my project shown? How can I get my project shown? So we've talked about, you know, for completed films doing metaverse screenings for people who follow us on IG so that they can literally watch. For those of you who've never been in a metaverse screen, it's really unique, right? That, that's a way to do it, right? We'll also be doing like uh, what we call table read Thursdays or table read Tuesdays where people who write scripts can literally do a table read and have people in there. And so people can get a sense of, of what it looks like. But in terms of early feedback, for the most part, it's been positive. People are like, we need this. We literally, I was literally on a conversation with someone else who was like, I was, he literally said to me, he's like, Sharif, I was having this conversation with my team in terms of how do we offer up something for our investors? We've done Kickstarter before, and we know we've had some lukewarm success with it, but we've noticed people might sign up for our Kickstarter at first, but it's hard to get them to come back a second time, a third time. And the reason that is is because they're not getting anything out of it other than maybe a T-shirt and a coffee mug. Then there's also negative feedback. You're also going to get that, right? There's people who are like, ah, what you're talking about is a scam. This will never work. Or some of the feedback that I've gotten is, you know, people immediately think like, hey, on your platform, I need to raise $100,000. Can I do that? I'm like, well, according to Reg CF, of course you can. And they're like, no, no, no. Do you have investors right now lined up who can give me $100,000? My response to that is, if I had investors right now who can line up to give you $100,000, I'd charge you $40,000. Because that's what a bank does. If I can get you 100 grand that I know you need, why wouldn't I charge you 40%? We've seen this model before. It's called banks. For the people who didn't have banks in the past, it was called the mafia. That's what that's loan sharking. That's, that's what happened, right? So, you know, so understand. So we're just a platform that allows people to offer up equity. The hope is that obviously we scale. I was a kid when Do the Right Thing came out, right? And just being blown away. And automatically, after watching that film, I was a Spike Lee fan, right? I then went and saw Mo Better Blues and his subsequent films. I remember my brother saying to me, well, have you seen She's Got to Have It in School Days? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he was like, wait, Spike's first films. And I was like, wait, Spike Lee had something before Do the... I had no... Keep in mind, folks, there was no Google at the time, right? I just couldn't go and look up Spike Lee's you know, 
his, his filmography. So I was like, wait, there's films that Spike did before this. I need to run out and go see them. So I immediately had, you know, mom and dad take me to, to Blockbuster Video. Yes, you had Blockbuster back in the day. And try and find She's Gotta Have It and, and, and School Days and all those things. So it certainly can happen, right? Uh, and honestly, I expect it to happen. Once that content creator gets a name for themselves, you'll then, if someone becomes a fan of you, they then want to hear your previous work, at least in my, in, in my feelings, in my opinion, and then really want to see sort of your progression as an artist, so is the barrier to distribution money, like could they raise enough to pay the entrance fee for distribution or is there some other decision point that needs to be made uh, for somebody to have their film distributed in yeah. the contemporary blockbuster? And if so, is that something that you can show to investors to lend credibility to distribution later on? Absolutely. So I think the distribution channels now are a lot more viable. Now, as far as when we launch... Um, we're looking to do that as soon as possible. So we hope it's over the course of the next 30 to 60 days, right? We've been working on this for a number of years now, right? And the plan is to launch. How inspiring to be a part of the new American dream. Shreve has been an absolute joy to sit down and talk with you. Uh, we have a tradition where we like for our guests to leave the last words. So uh, we'll give you the floor here. What do you want to leave us with? Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, I guess, uh, oh, that's tough, right? I guess I'll just leave it at, uh, once again, we started this podcast, I'm a hip-hop junkie and I'm a hip-hop fanatic, right? So I guess I'll, I'll leave it with a quote from uh, Guru from Gangstar, one of my favorite lines uh, ever. And uh, the, the phrase is, uh, heed the words, it's like ghetto star proverbs, the righteous pay a sacrifice to get what they deserve. I love it. Until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. Join it, and we'll see you next week.